Preface of The Hoosier Schoolmaster This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Bridget Gage The Hoosier Schoolmaster by Edward Eggleston Preface to the Library Edition Being the History of a Story The Hoosier Schoolmaster was written and printed in the autumn of 1871. It is therefore now about twenty-one years old, and the publishers propose to mark its coming of age by issuing a library edition. I avail myself of the occasion to make some needed revisions, and to preface the new edition with an account of the origin and adventures of the book. If I should seem to betray unbecoming pride in speaking of a story that has passed into several languages, and maintained an undiminished popularity for more than a score of years— I count on receiving the indulgence commonly granted to paternal vanity when celebrating the majority of a firstborn. With all its faults on its head, this little tale has become a classic, in the bookseller's sense at least, and a public that has shown so constant a partiality for it has a right to feel some curiosity regarding its history. I persuade myself that additional extenuation for this biography of a book is to be found in the relation which the Hoosier schoolmaster happens to bear to the most significant movement in American literature in our generation. It is the file-leader of the procession of American dialect novels. Before the appearance of this story, the New England folk speech had long been employed for various literary purposes, it is true and after its use by Lowell, it had acquired a standing that made it the classic lingua rustica of the United States. Even Hoosiers and Southerners, when put into print, as they sometimes were in rude burlesque stories, usually talked about huskin bees and apple parin bees, and used many other expressions foreign to their vernacular. American literature hardly touched the speech and life of the people outside of New England, in other words, it was provincial in the narrow sense. I can hardly suppose that the Hoosier schoolmaster bore any causative relation to that broader provincial movement in our literature, which now includes such remarkable productions as the writings of Mr. Cable, Mr. Harris, Mr. Page, Miss Murphy, Mr. Richard Malcolm Johnson, Mr. Howe, Mr. Garland, some of Mrs. Burnett's stories, and others quite worthy of inclusion in this list. The taking up of life in this regional way has made our literature really national by the only process possible. The federal nation has at length manifested a consciousness of the continental diversity of its forms of life. The great American novel, for which prophetic critics yearned so fondly twenty years ago, is appearing in sections. I may claim for this book the distinction, such as it is, of being the first of the dialect stories that depict a life quite beyond New England influence. Some of Mr. Bret Hart's brief and powerful tales had already foreshadowed this movement toward a larger rendering of our life, but the romantic character of Mr. Hart's delightful stories, and the absence of anything that can justly be called dialect in them, mark them as rather forerunners than beginners of the prevailing school. For some years after the appearance of the present novel, my own stories had to themselves the field of provincial realism, if indeed there be any such thing as realism, before there came the succession of fine productions which have made the last fourteen years notable. Though it had often occurred to me to write something in the dialect now known as Hoosier, the folk speech of the southern part of Ohio, Indiana, and Illinois of forty years ago, 
I had postponed the attempt indefinitely, probably because the only literary use that had been made of the allied speech of the Southwest had been in the books of the primitive humorists of that region. I found it hard to disassociate, in my own mind, the dialect from the somewhat coarse boisterousness which seemed inseparable from it in the works of these rollicking writers. It chanced that in 1871, Taine's lectures on art in the Netherlands, or rather Mr. John Durand's translation of them, fell into my hands as a book for editorial review. These discourses are little else than an elucidation of the thesis that the artist of originality will work courageously with the materials he finds in his own environment. In Taine's view, all life has matter for the artist, if only he have eyes to see. Many years previous to the time of which I am now speaking, while I was yet a young man, I had projected a lecture on the Hoosier folk speech, and had even printed during the war a little political skit in that dialect in a St. Paul paper. So far as I know, nothing else had ever been printed in the Hoosier. Under the spur of Taine's argument, I now proceeded to write a short story, wholly in the dialect spoken in my childhood by rustics on the north side of the Ohio River. This tale I called The Hoosier Schoolmaster. It consisted almost entirely of an autobiographical narration in dialect by Mirandy Means, of the incidents that form the groundwork of the present story. I was the newly installed editor of a weekly journal, Hearth and Home, and I sent this little story in a new dialect to my printer. It chanced that one of the proprietors of the paper saw a part of it in proof. He urged me to take it back and make a longer story out of the materials, and he expressed great confidence in the success of such a story. Yielding to his suggestion, I began to write this novel from week to week, as it appeared in the paper, and thus found myself involved in the career of a novelist, which had up to that time formed no part of my plan of life. In my inexperience I worked at a white heat, completing the book in ten weeks. Long before these weeks of eager toil were over, it was a question among my friends whether the novel might not write finis to me before I should see the end of it. The sole purpose I had in view at first was the resuscitation of the dead and alive newspaper, of which I had ventured to take charge. One of the firm of publishers thought much less favorably of my story than his partner did. I was called into the private office and informed with some severity that my characters were too rough to be presentable in a paper so refined as ours. I confess they did seem somewhat too robust for a sheet so anemic as Hearth and Home had been in the months just preceding. But when, the very next week after this protest was made, the circulation of the paper increased some thousands at a bound, my employer's critical estimate of the work underwent a rapid change, a change based on what seemed to him better than merely literary considerations. By the time the story closed, at the end of fourteen installments, the subscription list had multiplied itself four or five-fold. It is only fair to admit, however, that the original multiplicand had been rather small. Papers in Canada, and in some of the other English colonies, transferred the novel bodily to their columns, and many of the American country papers helped themselves to it quite freely. It had run some weeks of its course before it occurred to anyone that it might profitably be reprinted in book form. The publishers were loath to risk much in the venture. The newspaper type was re-justified to make a book page, and barely two thousand copies were printed for a first edition. I remember expressing the opinion that the number was too large. 
the Hoosier schoolmaster was pirated with the utmost promptitude by the Messrs. Routledge in England, for that was in the barbarous days before international copyright, when English publishers complained of the unscrupulousness of American reprinters, while they themselves pounced upon every line of American production that promised some shillings of profit. The Hoosier schoolmaster was brought out in England in a cheap sensational form. The edition of Ten Thousand has long been out of print. For this large edition, and for the editions issued in the British colonies, and in continental Europe, I have never received a penny. A great many men have made money out of the book, but my own returns have been comparatively small. For its use in serial form, I received nothing beyond my salary as editor. On the copyright edition, I have received the moderate royalty allowed to young authors at the outset of their work. The sale of the American edition in the first twenty years amounted to seventy thousand copies. The peculiarity of this sale is its steadiness. After twenty years, the Hoosier schoolmaster is selling at the average rate of more than three thousand copies per annum. During the last half-dozen years, the popularity of the book has apparently increased, and its twentieth year closed with a sale of twenty-one hundred in six months. Only those who are familiar with the book trade, and who know how brief is the life of the average novel, will understand how exceptional is this long-continued popularity. Some of the newspaper reviewers of twenty years ago were a little puzzled to know what to make of a book in so questionable a shape, for the American dialect novel was then a newcomer. But nothing could have given a beginner more genuine pleasure than the cordial commendation of the leading professional critic of the time, the late Mr. George Ripley, who wrote an extended review of this book for the Tribune. The monthly magazines all spoke of the Hoosier Schoolmaster in terms as favorable as it deserved. I cannot pretend that I was content with these notices at the time, for I had the sensitiveness of a beginner. But on looking at the reviews in the magazines of that day, I am amused to find that the faults pointed out in the work of my prentice hand are just those that I should be disposed to complain of now, if it were any part of my business to tell the reader wherein I might have done better. The nation, then in its youth, honored the Hoosier schoolmaster by giving it two pages, mostly in discussion of its dialect, but dispensing paradoxical praise and censure in that condescending way with which we are all familiar enough. According to its critic, the author had understood and described the old western life, but he had done it, quite sketchily to be sure. Yet it was done, with essential truth and some effectiveness. The critic, however, instantly stands on the other foot again, and adds that the book is not a captivating one but he makes amends in the very next sentence by an allusion to the faithfulness of its transcript of the life it depicts, and then instantly balances the account on the adverse side of the ledger by assuring the reader that it has no interest of passion or mental power. But even this fatal conclusion is diluted by a dependent clause. Possibly, says the reviewer, the good feeling of the intertwined love story may conciliate the good will of some of the malcontent. One could hardly carry further the fine art of oscillating between moderate commendation and parenthetical damnation, an art that lends a factitious air of judicial impartiality and mental equipoise. Beyond question, The Nation is one of the ablest weekly papers in the world. The admirable scholarship of its articles and reviews in departments of special knowledge might well be a subject of pride to any American. But its inadequate reviews of current fiction add nothing to its value 
and its habitual tone of condescending depreciation in treating imaginative literature of indigenous origin is one of the strongest discouragements to literary production. The main value of good criticism lies in its readiness and penetration in discovering and applauding merit, not before recognized or imperfectly recognized. This is a conspicuous trait of Saint-Beuve, the greatest of all newspaper critics. He knew how to be severe upon occasion, but he saw talent in advance of the public and dispensed encouragement heartily, so that he made himself almost a foster-father to the literature of his generation in France. But there is a class of anonymous reviewers in England and America who seem to hold a traditional theory that the function of a critic toward newborn talent is analogous to that of Pharaoh toward the infant Jewish population. During the first year after its publication, the Hoosier schoolmaster was translated into French and published in a condensed form in the Revue des Demandes. The translator was the writer who signs the name Monsieur de H. Bonzon, and who is well known to be Madame Blanc. This French version afterward appeared in book form in the same volume with one of Mr. Thomas Bailey Aldrich's stories and some other stories of mine. In this latter shape, I have never seen it. The title given to the story by Madame Blanc was Le Maître d'École de Flat Creek. It may be imagined that the translator found it no easy task to get equivalents in French for expressions in a dialect new and strange. I'll be dog-owned appears in French as devil take me. Diablement porte. Which is not bad, the devil being rather a jolly sort of fellow in French. The church of the best licks seems rather unrenderable, and I do not see how the translator could have found a better phrase for it than l'église des raclés though raclés does not convey the double sense of licks jim épelé vite comme l'éclair is not a good rendering of jim spelled like lightning since it is not the celerity of the spelling that is the main consideration concours d'épellation is probably the best equivalent for spelling school but it seems something more stately in its french dress when Bud says, with reference to Hannah, I never took no shine that airway, the phrase is rather too idiomatic for the French tongue, and it becomes, I haven't run after that hair. Je n'ai pas chassé ce lièvre-là. Perhaps the most sadly amusing thing in the translation is the way the meaning of the name Shaki is missed in an explanatory footnote. It is, according to the translator, an abbreviation or corruption of the English word shocking which expresses the shocking ugliness of the child. Qui exprime la laideur choquante de l'enfant. A German version of the Hoosier schoolmaster was made about the time of the appearance of the French translation, but of this I have never seen a copy. I know of it only from the statement made to me by a German professor, that he had read it in German before he knew any English. What are the equivalents in High German for right smart and doggone? I cannot imagine. Several years after the publication of The Hoosier Schoolmaster, it occurred to Mr. H. Hansen, of Kroja, in Denmark, to render it into Danish. Among the Danes, the book enjoyed a popularity as great, perhaps, as it has had at home. The circulation warranted Mr. Hansen and his publisher in bringing out several other novels of mine. 
The Danish translator was the only person concerned in the various foreign editions of this book who had the courtesy to ask the author's leave. Under the old conditions in regard to international copyright, an author came to be regarded as one not entitled even to common civilities in the matter of reprinting his works. He was to be plundered without politeness. As I look at the row of my books in the unfamiliar Danish, I am reminded of that New England mother who, on recovering her children, carried away by the Canadian Indians, found it impossible to communicate with a daughter who spoke only French, and a son who knew nothing but the speech of his savage captors. Mr. Hansen was thoughtful enough to send me the reviews of my books in the Danish newspapers, and he had the double kindness to translate these into English, and to leave out all but those that were likely to be agreeable to my vanity. Of these I remember but a single sentence, and that because it was expressed with felicity. The reviewer said of the fun in the Hoosier schoolmaster, This is humor laughing to keep from bursting into tears. A year or two before the appearance of the Hoosier schoolmaster, a newspaper article of mine touching upon American dialect interested Mr. Lowell, and he urged me to look for the foreign influence that has affected the speech of the Ohio River country. My reverence for him as the master in such studies did not prevent me from feeling that the suggestion was a little absurd. But at a later period I became aware that North Irishmen used many of the pronunciations and idioms that distinctly characterized the language of old-fashioned people on the Ohio. Many Ulstermen say, where, for were, and air, for are, for example. Connecting this with the existence of a considerable element of Scotch-Irish names in the Ohio River region, I could not doubt that here was one of the keys the master had bidden me look for. While pursuing, at a later period, a series of investigations into the culture history of the American people in the 17th and 18th centuries, I became much interested in the emigration to America from the north of Ireland, a movement that waxed and waned as the great Irish linen industry of the last century declined or prospered. The first American home of these Irish was Pennsylvania. A portion of them were steady-going, psalm-singing, money-getting people, who in the course of time made themselves felt in the commerce, politics, and intellectual life of the nation. There was also a daredevil element, descended perhaps from those rude borderers who were deported to Ireland more for the sake of the peace of North Britain than for the benefit of Ireland. In this rougher class there was perhaps a larger dash of the Celtic fire that came from the wild Irish women, whom the first Scotch settlers in Ulster made the mothers of their progeny. Arriving in the wilds of Pennsylvania, these Irishmen built rude cabins, planted little patches of corn and potatoes, and distilled a whiskey that was never suffered to grow mellow. The forest was congenial to men who spent much the larger part of their time in boisterous sport of one sort or another. The manufacture of the rifle was early brought to Lancaster, in Pennsylvania, direct from the land of its invention by Swiss emigrants, and in the adventurous Scotch-Irishmen of the Pennsylvania frontier the rifle found its fellow. Irish settlers became hunters of wild beasts, explorers, pioneers, and warriors against the Indians upon whom they avenged their wrongs with relentless ferocity. Both the Irish race and the intermingled Pennsylvania Dutch were prolific, and the up-country of Pennsylvania soon overflowed. 
Emigration was held in check to the westward for a while by the cruel massacres of the French and Indian wars, and one river of population poured itself southward into the fertile valleys of the Virginia mountain country. Another and larger flood swept still farther to the south, along the eastern borders of the Appalachian Range, until it reached the uplands of Carolina. When the militia of one county in South Carolina was mustered during the Revolution, it was found that every one of the thirty-five hundred men enrolled were natives of Pennsylvania. These were mainly sons of North Irishmen, and from the Carolina Irish sprang Calhoun, the most aggressive statement that has appeared in America, and Jackson, the most brilliant military genius in the whole course of our history. Before the close of the Revolution this adventurous race had begun to break over the passes of the Alleghanies into the dark and bloody ground of Kentucky and Tennessee. Soon afterward, a multitude of Pennsylvanians of all stocks, the Scotch-Irish and those Germans, Swiss and Hollanders, who are commonly classed together as the Pennsylvania Dutch, as well as a large number of people of English descent, began to migrate down the Ohio Valley. Along with them came professional men and people of more or less culture, chiefly from eastern Virginia and Maryland. There came also into Indiana and Illinois, from the border states and from as far south as North Carolina and Tennessee, a body of poor whites. These semi-nomadic people, descendants of the colonial bond-servants, formed, in the second quarter of the nineteenth century, the lowest rank of Hoosiers. But as early as 1845, there was a considerable exodus of these to Missouri. From Pike County, in that state, they wended their way to California, to appear in Mr. Bret Hart's stories as Pikes. The movement of this class out of Indiana went on with augmented volume in the fifties. The emigrants of this period mostly sought the states lying just west of the Mississippi, and the poorer sort made the trip in little one-horse wagons of the sorriest description laden mainly with white-headed children, and followed by the yellow curs that are the one luxury indispensable to a family of this class. To this migration, and to a liberal provision for popular education, Indiana owes a great improvement in the average intelligence of her people. As early as 1880, I believe, the state had come to rank with some of the New England states in the matter of literacy. The folk speech of the Ohio River country has many features in common with that of the eastern middle states. While it received but little from the dignified 18th century English of eastern Virginia, there are distinct traces of the North Irish in the idioms and in the peculiar pronunciations. One finds also here and there a word from the Pennsylvania Dutch, such as wamus, for a loose jacket, from the German wams, a doublet, and smearcase, for cottage cheese, from the German Schmierkäse. The only French word left by the old voyageurs, so far as I now remember, is cordel, to tow a boat by a rope carried along the shore. Substantially the same folk speech exists wherever the Pennsylvania migration formed the main element of the primitive settlement. I have heard the same dialect in the South Carolina uplands that one gets from a Posey County Hoosier or rather that one used to get, in the old days before the Vandal schoolmaster had reduced the vulgar tongue to the monotonous propriety of what we call good English. In drawing some of the subordinate characters in this tale a little too baldly from the model, I fell into an error common to inexperienced writers. 
It is amusing to observe that these portrait characters seem the least substantial of all the figures in the book. Dr. Small is a rather unrealistic villain, but I knew him well, and respected him in my boyish heart for a most exemplary Christian of good family, at the very time that, according to testimony afterward given, he was diversifying his pursuits as a practicing physician by leading a gang of burglars. More than one person has been pointed out as the original of Bud Means, and I believe there are one or two men, each of whom flatters himself that he posed for the figure of the first disciple of the Church of the Best Licks. Bud is made up of an element found in some of his race, but not in any one man. Not dreaming that the story would reach beyond the small circulation of hearth and home, I used the names of people in Switzerland and Decatur counties, in Indiana, almost without being aware of it. I have heard that a young man bearing the surname given to one of the rudest families in this book had to suffer many jibes while a student at an Indiana college. I here do public penance for my culpable indiscretion. Jeems Phillips, name and all, is a real person whom at the time of writing this story I had not seen since I was a lad of nine, and he a man of nearly forty. He was a mere memory to me, and was put into the book with some slighting remarks, which the real Jeems did not deserve. I did not know that he was living, and it did not seem likely that the story would have vitality enough to travel all the way to Indiana. But the portion referring to Phillips was transferred to the county paper circulating among Jeems' neighbors. For once, the good-natured man was, as they say in Hoosier, mad, and he threatened to thrash the editor. "'Do you think he means you?' demanded the editor. "'To be sure he does,' said the champion speller. "'Can you spell?' "'I can spell down any master that ever came to our district,' he replied. As time passed on, Phillips found himself a lion. Strangers desired an introduction to him as a notability, and invited the champion to dissipate with them at the soda fountain in the village drug store. It became a matter of pride with him that he was the most famous speller in the world. Two years ago, while visiting the town of my nativity, I met upon the street the aged James Phillips, whom I had not seen for more than forty years. I would go far to hear him spell down a complacent schoolmaster once more. The publication of this book gave rise to an amusing revival of the spelling school as a means of public entertainment, not in rustic regions alone, but in towns also. The furor extended to the great cities of New York and London, and reached at last to farthest Australia, spreading to every region in which English is spelled or spoken. But the effect of the chapter on the spelling school was temporary and superficial. The only organization that came from the spelling school mania, so far as I know, was an association of proofreaders in London to discuss mooted points. The sketch of the Church of the Best Licks, however, seems to have made a deep and enduring impression upon individuals, and to have left some organized results. I myself endeavored to realize it, and for five years I was the pastor of a church in Brooklyn, organized on a basis almost as simple as that in the Flat Creek schoolhouse. The name I rendered into respectable English, and the Church of the Best Licks became the Church of Christian Endeavor. It was highly successful in doing that which a church ought to do, and its methods of work have been widely copied. After my work as a minister had been definitely closed, the name and the underlying thought of this church were borrowed for a young people's society, 
and thus the little story of good endeavor in Indiana seems to have left a permanent mark on the ecclesiastical organization of the time. If any one, judging by the length of this preface, should conclude that I hold my little book in undue esteem, let him know that I owe it more than one grudge. It is said that Thomas Campbell, twenty years after the appearance of his best-known poem, was one day introduced as the author of The Pleasures of Hope. "'Confound the pleasures of hope!' he protested. "'Can't I write anything else?' So, however much I may prefer my later work, more carefully wrought in respect of thought, structure, and style, this initial novel, the favorite of the larger public, has become inseparably associated with my name. Often I have mentally applied Campbell's imprecation on the pleasures of hope to this story. I could not write in this vein now if I would, and twenty-one years have made so many changes in me, that I dare not make any but minor changes in this novel. The author of The Hoosier Schoolmaster is distinctly not I. I am but his heir and executor, and since he is a more popular writer than I, why should I meddle with his work? I have, however, ventured to make some necessary revision of the diction, and have added notes, mostly with reference to the dialect. A second grudge against this story is that somehow its readers persist in believing it to be a bit of my own life. Americans are credulous believers in that miracle of the imagination, whom no one has ever seen in the flesh, the self-made man. Some readers of the Hoosier Schoolmaster have settled it for a certainty that the author sprang from the rustic class he has described. One lady even wrote to inquire whether my childhood were not represented in Shockey, the little lad out of the poorhouse. A biographical sketch of me in Italian goes so far as to state that among the hard resorts by which I made a living in my early life was the teaching of a Sunday school in Chicago. No one knows so well as I the faults of immaturity and inexperience that characterize this book. But perhaps, after all, the public is right in so often preferring an author's first book. There is what Emerson would have called a central spontaneity about the work of a young man that may give more delight to the reader than all the precision of thought and perfection of style for which we strive as life advances. Joshua's Rock on Lake George, 1892 Footnotes since writing the passage in the text, I have met with the following in the Speaker of London. Everybody knows that when an important work is published in history, philosophy, or any branch of science, the editor of a respectable paper employs an expert to review it. Indeed, the more abstruse the subject of the book, the more careful and intelligent you will find the review. It is equally well known that works of fiction and books of verse are not treated with anything like the same care. A good poem, play, or novel is at least as fine an achievement as a good history. Yet the history gets the benefit of an expert's judgment and two columns of thoughtful praise or censure, while the poem, play, or novel is treated to ten skittish lines by the hack who happens to be within nearest call when the book comes in. Part of the Preface to the First Edition I may as well confess what it would be affectation to conceal that I am more than pleased with the generous reception accorded to this story as a serial in the columns of Hearth and Home. It has been in my mind since I was a Hoosier boy to do something toward describing life in the back-country districts of the western states. 
It used to be a matter of no little jealousy with us, I remember, that the manners, customs, thoughts, and feelings of New England country people filled so large a place in books, while our life, not less interesting, not less romantic, and certainly not less filled with humorous and grotesque material, had no place in literature. It was as though we were shut out of good society. And, with the single exception of Alice Gary, perhaps, our Western writers did not dare speak of the West, otherwise than as the unreal world to which Cooper's lively imagination had given birth. I had some anxiety, lest Western readers should take offense at my selecting what must always seem an exceptional phase of life to those who have grown up in the more refined regions of the West. But nowhere has the schoolmaster been received more kindly than in his own country and among his own people. Some of those who have spoken generous words of the schoolmaster and his friends have suggested that the story is an autobiography. But it is not, save in the sense in which every work of art is an autobiography, in that it is the result of the experience and observation of the writer. Readers will therefore bear in mind that not Rolf, nor Bud, nor Brother Sodom, nor Dr. Small represents the writer. Nor do I appear, as Talleyrand said of Madame de Stal, disguised as a woman, in the person of Hannah or Mirandi. Some of the incidents have been drawn from life, none of them, I believe, from my own. I should like to be considered a member of the Church of the Best Licks, however. It has been in my mind to append some remarks, philological and otherwise, upon the dialect. But Professor Lowell's admirable and erudite preface to the Biglow Papers must be the despair of every one who aspires to write on Americanisms. To Mr. Lowell belongs the distinction of being the only one of our most eminent authors, and the only one of our most eminent scholars, who has given careful attention to American dialects. But while I have not ventured to discuss the provincialisms of the Indiana backwoods, I have been careful to preserve the true usus loquendi of each locution. Brooklyn, December 1871 End of the Preface